Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for all the wonderful gifts that you give us, especially for the music that has been passed down through generations, for us to sing and to enjoy in church, and we also thank you for preserving your doctrine, your word throughout the history of the church. And we pray that you would help us to keep these gifts as as treasures and to always look for Christ in all that we say and think and do. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so we talked about the church year last week, and we did not get to Lutheran hymnody, uh, which was kind of next on our agenda. But let me tell you where we're going. So we're going to talk about Lutheran hymnody tonight. We're on page 207 in the book, and uh, this kind of goes along with the discussion of the liturgy and with the discussion of uh, worship in general. We're going to talk about kind of music in the church, but then we're going to move on to church history. Now, that actually does kind of uh, connect in the sense that uh, we're talking about the heritage of Lutheran hymnody, which does have to do with history. Uh, what we are going to do is, instead of going straight to the Reformation like the book does, uh, which would connect probably even better with the uh, Heritage of Lutheran Music section, we're going to um, go to, uh, if you want to, uh, I can just write down the page number here. Um, we're going to go to page 288 and 289 in the book. And... Uh, so we're at 207 right now. And that, that's an appendix on the history of the uh, basic church history, um, starting in, in year 3 BC, right? The uh, apostolic age when Jesus is born. So um, we're going to go through that those pages first. I think that's important. Um, and then we're going to spend, of course, more time on... Luther and the Reformation and uh, that that kind of thing. So um, and then that and then that that also leads in. So um, the way that the book does it is it talks about Luther and the Reformation and then it talks about the history of Lutheranism all the way up to today. So that'll that'll bring us. So we're going to do kind of big 10,000 foot view church history and then we're going to do Lutheran church history. Is, is how we're going to do it. So we're going to zoom out and then we're going to zoom in, if that makes sense. Okay. But um, we're getting uh, we we are we are getting further along in the book. Um, I think we got one major section after that, and about uh, living as Lutherans, basically, and the kind of a lot of practical like everyday life sanctification type of um, material. So, uh, we're, we're getting, we're getting on our way through the book. Um, probably won't be that much longer. We'll, we'll finish this, this book. So, all right. So let's, uh, take a look at the heritage of, of music in the Lutheran church. And, uh, there's this, uh, essay here. I don't know who wrote it. Some Lutheran musician, uh, on page 207, and it starts uh, talking about the year 1524, which uh, I don't know if I really had ever learned this about this before. So this is a, something a little new for me. But uh, there was uh, in 1524, the, the publication of the first Lutheran hymnal happened. Um, and it was named the Ochtliederbuch. The... Yeah, um, my German is not the best. Uh, or the eight hymn book. Uh, so not really a book, 24 pages, and you guessed it, eight hymns, right? Eight hymns. So the Reformation was still young in 1524. So I'm just going to kind of read through some of this here. Barely seven years had passed since Luther posted his 95 theses, theses 
His German translation of the New Testament had just appeared two years before his small and large catechisms still wouldn't come for another five years. Those are 1529. Uh, But two important books that came out that year uh, would shape the influence and course of music in the Lutheran Church. We had 1524, the eight-book hymnal, or the eight-hymn hymnal, eight-hymn book, the eight-hymn book. And um, then at the end of 1524, Johann Walter published a collection of music that would similarly influence Lutheran composers for the next 500 years. So basically when it comes to hymns, you have two parts, right? You have the text and you have the tune, right? And... Uh, you know, oftentimes you'll see in, in the bottom of the hymns in our bulletin, or if, if, especially if you look in the hymnal, at the bottom of uh, you'll of a hymn you'll have the author of the text, right? Whoever that is, and then you'll have the composer of the tune, right? And off, more often than not, these are different people, right? More often than not, uh, some kind of poet or theologian writes the text, and then some musical person, uh, kind of composer-type person, writes the tune, right? Sometimes people are both, um, but more often than not, those are kind of different people. And so, um, I mean, this has obviously been true throughout the history of all time of music uh, that's been sung, is you have to have both parts of that, right? Um, And so... You know, you can think about this kind of through the the history of the church. Um, for the most part, right in the in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, um, they're singing a lot of psalms, right? So the text is the psalms, and in the uh, they it, it kind of gets a little more and more creative as you go throughout time, right? So um, in the early Middle Ages and the early church. Maybe you're getting some of these things like introits, right, that we have every Sunday, which aren't just – they're psalms, but a lot of times they're compilation of psalms. So it's a verse here and a verse there, right? Or like we talked about uh, in the liturgy, you have these – you also have biblical canticles, right, uh, songs from the Bible that people then put to music and sing. And then also in the history of the church, right, you have um, – early on it's a lot of chanting, Right. And what, you know, what are the Roman Catholics majoritively doing when Luther comes on scene is Gregorian chanting. Right. So it's a lot of psalms and a lot of chanting. Yeah. What language was that Gregorian chant in? Latin. Latin. Yeah. So um, pretty. So basically, when we look at church history um, after Constantine. um, So in the I think the Vulgate is written in the in the 300s. Um, that after that early church period of kind of one to 300, which is all Greek still, Koine Greek, um, then everything basically switches to Latin until Luther. And then, and then he puts things into the language of the people, which is at, for his people at that time, German, right? Um, but that, that's a good question because that kind of connects with what we're talking about, right? So, um, people are doing a lot of a lot of chanting and a lot of kind of biblical psalms and things. Of course, uh, there are uh, other, and then you know, maybe you're getting these com- these introits, these combinations of psalms. Um, but then even from the early church, we have uh, things that are um, they sound like psalms, but they're they're written in the early church. So sometimes you'll get in the introit. If you look at the introit once in a while, it'll like say this is from you know Psalm this, Psalm that, and also semicolon liturgical text, right? So you get these. Sometimes those are from the apocrypha, um, but sometimes they're also just like early church uh, chants, right? So an example of this would be um, that chant we do in Compline. At the beginning of the Nook Diminis, guide us waking, O Lord, and guide, guard us sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and the sleep we may rest in peace. That's like this early church chant that just kind of showed up, right? All right, well, um, so 
and and we also have some we have some hymns from the early church as well. As I'm thinking about it, um, there's uh, the one that comes to mind is that it's actually like a children's song from the early church. Shepherd of Tender Youth. Um, So this is a hymn, uh, Shepherd of Tender Youth, by Clement of Alexandria from, he was born in 170 and died in 220. Um, It's a good hymn. Shepherd of Tender Youth, guiding in love and truth through devious ways, Christ our triumphant King, we come your name to sing and hear our children bring to join your praise. and it's that's the first stanza. There's five stanzas. Another early church hymn that comes to mind is uh, from from evening prayer. Uh, we have it in in our evening prayer service. The uh, th- this is called the Fos Hilaron. This is one of the earliest church hymns. Um, and you, we've we've I think we've sung this before. Uh, joy. This is on. Well, you don't have a hymnal. Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ. We have come to the setting of the sun, and we look to the evening light. Y'all recognize that at all? Okay. Um, well, we have sung it before. <laughs> but that's called the Fosseleron, or the hymn of light, is what it's called. Um, that's an evening prayer in our in our Lutheran service book. That's an early early church hymn, um, or also in Matins the Te Deum, the Te Deum Laudamus. That's a uh, um, early church hymn as well. So there were hymns in the early church, just not tons of them, right? They didn't have hymnals like we have with, you know, uh, six hundred some odd hymns in them by any means, right? Um, but this is the treasure of living two thousand years into the history of the church is that um, we have 2,000 years of hymn writers and, hymn, and hymns to pull from. Did they use the same tune more? It seemed like it would have been easier to have yeah. text. Great point, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a, a long tradition of the church is that um so originally and you could kind of hear it in that hymn that it was very chanty kind of sounding well that's because it's basically a melodized version of gregorian chant and even with gregorian chant you'd basically have a set number of chant tones that were kind of stayed the same, and then people would put different texts to those chant tones. As music became, um, in the church, became more melodic and less chanty, uh, that's the technical term, chanty, um, then uh, you had the exact same thing happen, where you'd have a set number of tunes and that people kind of knew, and then people would just write multiple hymns to that same Tune. So what this is called is uh, this has to do with something called meter, right? So in if you look in um, the bottom of any hymn, so uh, let me just pick one that's kind of easy. Um, it doesn't really matter, honestly. Okay, so the two hymns I just opened up to, at the bottom in the right-hand corner, they have uh, 7-6-7-6-D. And what that means is that this is, this is basically the rhyme scheme. So um, the first line is going to have seven syllables. The second line is going to have six syllables. And then the third line is going to have seven syllables, and the sixth, the fourth line is going to have six syllables. 
and then that's going to be the D stands for doubled. So there's not always a D there, but when there's a D there, that means doubled, which means it's actually really seven six seven six seven six seven six. And then those uh, lines are gonna are gonna rhyme. So the the first two lines are gonna rhyme, and then the second two lines are gonna rhyme, and then and so on and so forth. So. Um, so, so this is Hosanna, loud Hosanna. Hosanna, loud Hosanna, the little children sang. Hosanna, Hosanna loud Hosanna, the little children rang. So that's, uh, did I do that right? Hosanna, loud Hosanna. So that's seven. Then the little children sang. So that's six. So seven, six, seven, six. And then... Through pillared court and temple, the lovely anthem rang. Okay, so then the sixth, uh, so I, I said that wrong earlier. It's the sixth and the sixth that then rhyme. So um, it's one set and then the second set, and then those, those two sets together rhyme. Um, and then to Jesus who had blessed them, close folded to his breast, the children sang their praises, the simplest and best. So that that second set, the the third and fourth set of seven six seven six also rhymes. Okay, so that anyway, that's what meter is. But what's cool, this is what I'm getting to, is that you can take any text that follows this meter and put it to any tune that is that meter. So I can find any other hymn in the hymnal that's seven six seven six doubled and put it to this tune, right? And uh, yes, yeah, Steve, you, go ahead. You do that when we uh, like sing the psalms. Yeah, so that's what the singing the psalms is based on that that we've been doing for. Actually, we've been doing it for a year now, um, because we're actually now going back. We're repeating all the ones we've done. Um, so uh, we've and and we do it about every other week. So it's been like there's um, what uh, twenty. 26 psalms that we've sang now, I think, or so. Right. So, um, what I'll, yeah, what I'll do is I'll look at the text for the psalm. Um, it's from a, it's actually from a Presbyterian website, but it, it has metered psalm text. And then I'll look in our hymnal and I'll find familiar tunes that have that meter. And then that's how, uh, how that's been done. So, um, that's a pretty cool, yeah, go ahead. No, I don't know. I mean, it's got to be pretty early in the church. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting. To so, um, what's if if you're get if you get really interested in this, um, there is a uh, index in the back of the hymnal with uh, that lists all the tunes by meter, and then all the tunes have names, and so then uh, you have to you have to kind of learn the the tune names as well, but. That's uh, kind of beside the point, but uh, so anyway, that that's a good uh, good point and good question. That and that for a lot of history right now we have these 600 some hymns and and a lot of them have different tunes, um, but some of them do have the same tune. But um, one of the one of the good things about maybe having less tunes was, for instance, the first English Lutheran hymnal, the Evangelical Lutheran Hymn Book. It's published in the 1920s. Um, most LCMS Lutherans continue using German really up until uh, the World Wars, and, and then we kind of stopped using German for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, in the 1920s, the first English Lutheran hymnal was published Evangelical Lutheran Hymn Book, and that the, the LCMS published, CPH published, and they made two versions. One was a big version with the like just like this that's got all the music in it. One was a small version um, with just the text, 
and then what the name of the tune was. And there was only like maybe two dozen tunes, and then everyone just kind of knew those tunes, and they didn't need all the music, right? So um, they could just say, oh, this is to this tune, and then they could sing it, right? And you had those tunes really well memorized. So that was uh, that's kind of an interesting idea, right, that you could have so many tunes, and then you just put the different texts to those tunes. And that's that's kind of been true throughout throughout history. All right. Um, and and well, we'll get into the kind of heritage of Lutherans with that here in a minute. So let's get back to this, this essay, The Heritage of Lutheran Music. Uh, um, oh, yeah, my main my main point I was actually getting to a really long time ago now was that one of the things that Lutherans really did here, as we'll see, is that they really gave a broadening to the possibilities of what could be done with church music, right? Um, because there were, in, in this sense, kind of limited tunes. It was all kind of chant. There were hymns, but there weren't that many. But when Luther put the music back into the people's mouths by putting it in instead of in the Latin into German, where people could sing it, this was really big, right? Because at by the time of Luther, um, because of the way the Roman Catholic Church was so authoritarian and everything, um, the only really the choirs and the priests sang, right? The people didn't sing. And this is really, uh, I want to say that the heritage of Lutheran music, more than anything, is that we sing, right? If you go to a Roman Catholic church today, most people don't sing, right? They'll, they'll have hymns with an organ even or whatever, but um, most people just kind of stand there and don't sing, yeah. I think you know, the, uh, the Jewish church, you know, the Jewish religion, they had chanters. Yeah. Or, you know, they didn't... Cancers, yeah. yeah. They didn't have everybody singing. It was just, yeah, know. just a specified person, right? And um, I mean, of course, with uh, I, there's the there's a history of Protestants really from Lutherans uh, singing boldly, right? But even today, if you go to other Protestant churches, there are a lot of churches you might go to where they don't really sing boldly, right? They don't really sing. Some some do, right? Depends. Um, but but Lutherans really really were the forerunners in the people singing the hymns and the psalms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're getting to that. We're getting to that, yeah. Yeah. So uh, church of Christ. Yeah, Church of Christ. Yeah. Um they don't believe in they music they instrumentation. Yeah. They, they, sing. they sing, but they acapella. Sing, yeah. Okay. yeah. No, no instrumentation, right? Um, okay, so one of the first hymns in the hymn book, uh, the eight hymn book, was Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, uh, which is still one of our favorite hymns today, uh, one of Luther's, Luther's hymns. Um, Dear Christians, one and all rejoice. Uh, the singing congregation proclaims to one another our lost condition and need for a Savior, and also the good news that God sent his son to rescue us. Um, the hymn teaches the details of salvation story and puts words of praise for those saving deeds on the lips of the singers. Luther does this in all ten stanzas, but his words are not dry and lifeless. The hymn is full of vibrant, rich imagery using language that makes the message personal and vital. Okay. Um, yeah, and then this is why I was just saying. Moreover, the book was designed for the average person, not for the scholar, priest, or choir singer. If you could read German, this book was for you. The hymns could be learned, memorized, and sung time and time again at home, in the marketplace, and even in church. The melodies were robust, well-crafted, and memorable. And the book also included scripture references for some hymns, showing the clear connection between God's word and the words and content of the hymns. And all that basically... They're talking about the eight hymn book, but that's still true with our hymnals today, right? We have scripture references, um, and it's it's all about uh, the richness of what we have. All right. Uh, the other 1524 publication was not intended for the average consumer. This was Johann Walter's, uh, I'm not going to do the German, spiritual song booklet. Um, no booklet, but a set of five parts part books 
printed expressly for choirs. While it was typical at the time to have choral music based on pre-existing tunes, such as Gregorian chant, this first Lutheran choir collection used the new chorale hymn, right, tunes instead. So this is really where we get the idea of hymns, period, right? I mean, we have, you had these spiritual songs and these, these what we call hymns, but the, the idea of hymn tunes really comes from this Lutheran idea of the chorale. And the chorale is, um, part, one of the main parts of it is it's multi-part, right? So as Steve was mentioning earlier, uh, right, in music, you have the four lines of music. You have traditionally the uh, melody line or the, the uh, soprano line, mm-hmm. and then the alto line, the tenor line, and the bass line. Right, and the soprano and alto, alto are in the treble clef, and the the tenor and bass are in the um, bass clef. Right, so if you're kind of familiar with music at all, um, but the you know Gregorian chant was just one line. Right, it was just whatever the chant melody was. Right, but what Lutherans did is they said, no, we can sing in parts, we can harmonize. Right, and um, and that that will beautify the music. I was gonna say that's what makes it beautiful. Right, is is the harmonies. Mm-hmm. And so um, the this this guy Johann Walter, along with this eight hymn book, right, published these these chorales, these hymn tunes. Um, the uh, the chorale was uh, normally uh, found with tenor part, and then the other voices supporting it and adorning it. And this this is like the uh, the analogy that everyone uses for this, it's like a jewel in a filigree setting, right? Um, that That's how the, the hymn tunes are. And because of that, the hymn text became quickly and firmly fixed in the minds of the ears of the people with the chorale tunes. When you read the hymn text, you thought of the chorale tune. When you heard the chorale tune, you thought of the hymn text. And now choirs could be singing texts and tunes in traditional musical settings as well. This close reliance and interdependency of the three uh, hymn text, chorale tunes, and supporting music would become a hallmark of Lutheran music. Okay, so um, really when we think of any kind of hymn that we sing today, whether it's like Amazing Grace or, um, you know, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, uh, it really follows in this tradition, right, of of these texts with these chorale-type tunes. Um, Martin Luther himself, is, so this goes on to talk about some of the hymn writers, I'm not going to read all of this. Martin Luther wrote nearly 40 hymns. Um, we have a lot of those. I think we have like 20 some in, in this hymnal, but he there's more that he wrote that aren't in the hymnal actually. Um, and a lot of them were paraphrasing scripture. A lot of what he did was take some of the old Gregorian type hymns and put them into uh, some of the old Latin hymns and put them to hymn tunes. Uh, he did that a lot. Um, the other thing he did was he wrote catechism hymns. He wrote hymns to teach people, right? So uh, our Father who from heaven above is basically the Lord's Prayer as a hymn, right? Or these are the Holy Ten Command- Commands are is the Ten Commandments as a hymn. And uh, or we all believe in one true God. That's the creed as a hymn. So Luther wrote these kind of catechism or catechetical hymns. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, I mean, that's how children learn their ABCs. It's in that song. So right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, That was a big idea of Luther's is that people learn in music, right? And that's that's one of the big advantages of our liturgy, um, not just the hymns, but the liturgy too, is that it gets in our minds, right? It really does get into our hearts when we sing it. So, um Okay, so that was Luther. Um, a couple other big uh, Lutheran hymn writers, uh, the biggest one probably being Paul Gerhardt, uh, who talks about here. Uh, Lutheran hymn writing flourished in the 17th century. Paul Gerhardt, his hymns exhibit solid Lutheran doctrine and superb poetic skills. Uh, so, O sacred head now wounded, all Christians who have been baptized now rest beneath night's shadow. O lamb goes uncomplaining forth and trust your days in burden. Um, there's way more than that, too. That he wrote, Johann Hermann's another one. Uh, 
Johann Alarius, uh, a number a number of they they um, they list a number of them here, right? And uh, but the, it it kind of never stopped, right? Once this ball got ro- rolling, so um, that's the 17th century, and then 18th century, and then um, we get all the way up to the 20th century, and it lists some 20th and 21st century hymn writers too here. So uh, among the more prominent American Lutheran hymn writers are Martin Franzman, Thy Strong Word, uh, Yaroslav Vida, uh, Go My Children with My Blessing. We just sang that on, on Sunday. Uh, Stephen Starkey, uh, the, the Tree of Life. Stephen Starkey is a, a pastor in Wisconsin, ah. LCMS pastor in Wisconsin, right? And he's got hymns in this hymnal that was published in 2006, wow. right? So uh, alongside – that's. You know, it probably makes him feel pretty good, right? You know, pu- published published alongside of Luther, right? Um, but uh, so, yeah, there's uh, that. This is the tr- the heritage of Lutheran music that that we don't, and that, that this is our kind of, you know, people say traditional versus contemporary music. Well, what do you mean contemporary? Because we have contemporary hymns in our hymnal, right? We sing hymns from. 2006 and before, right? And the only reason we don't sing hymns from after 2006 is because our hymnals from 2006, right? <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, so that's the text side of things, that's the hymn, hymn writer side of things. And and basically what hymn writing is, is writing poetry, right? Because you're, you're writing to a rhyme scheme, you're writing to a meter, and um, putting the faith into words, and and I think everyone can agree, right, that poetry, it speaks to the person different than just reading, right? So you can you can read the Bible, but reading the Bible in poetry or singing the Bible in poetry is just it's different, right? Um, no matter what kind of music you like, uh, whether you like country or if you like jazz or whatever, um, classical. There's there's something different about the way that music hits you than um, reading books, right? So, uh, and then the, of course the other side of that then is the music. So then we have composers, and it talks about a number of composers. Um, the maybe the most notable ones, right, are uh, Michael Pretorius. If you're into classical music at all, you've definitely heard that name, Pretorius. Uh, Lo, how a rose are blooming. Right was mm-hmm. one of the hymn tunes he wrote, um, but then of course this is um, kind of at the bottom of page 209. Standing at the summit of Lutheran musicians is Johann Sebastian Bach. Right, his organ works and church cantatas, typically based on chorales. Right, so he would write entire symphonies and cantatas based on the Lutheran chorale. And, and didn't he do that like weekly? Yeah, he. There was like one for. There was basically like one for like every week. Um, because so it's actually kind of connected uh, to the history of the idea of the hymn of the day, right? Mm-hmm. That um, at the center of every service you have this hymn of the day that is normally um, one of these famous Lutheran hymns to some degree, and um, Bach would kind of take those and then write cantatas around them. So you might have a um, if you if you're kind of if you're interested in this. Most uh, Sundays, I believe, um, if you go to lutheranpublicradio.org, they, they, they do have an app as well. Um, you can listen to Lutheran music 24-7. It's just a lot, like a 24-7 stream of, of Lutheran music. And on Sundays, they'll normally play a Bach cantata in the afternoon, which is nice. So, um, uh, so yes, yeah, st- uh, typically based on chorales and closely tied to the liturgical year, display technical brilliance, creative genius, and perfection of the art. He spent a lifetime carefully studying the best of the music he inherited and that of his contemporaries. He understood and was sensitive to the text he set in his music, which in turn proclaimed and even preached those texts. His passion settings... And the and his mass in B minor alone are enough to place him among the premier artists of Western civilization. Okay. Uh, Felix Mendelssohn, uh, Hugo uh, Disler, and then it, again it lists um, 
it, it kind of the author here um, goes through not just twenty, uh, you know, seventeenth century and eighteenth century composers, but now even twentieth and twenty-first century composers. So um, the last one it lists there, uh, Carl F. Schalk. Um, that name is very familiar to me because Schalk was a professor of music at Concordia River Forest, where I graduated from. And um, he wrote tons of Lutheran music, composed tons of Lutheran music, and a lot of which is there. There is a lot of which which is in our hymnal. Uh, for instance, um, now the silence, LSB 910, but there's other ones too. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I might have to double check this. I believe it was Schalk who wrote the the music for "This Is the Feast," which is everyone's favorite, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, is he still living? No, he passed away. No, is did he pass away? I think he passed away a couple years ago. I think it was while I was in seminary. But I did, I did see him on campus a few times um, when I was in college. If he did pass away, it was recent. If he didn't, then I did, I don't know who I, I don't know who I'm thinking of. But I'm glad. Uh, I can't. I have to double check on that. I want to say. He did, but I might be thinking of another similar type if person. Marshall was here, she could fact check it right away. That's right. Um, but anyway, this is uh, so I've taken up enough time on this. But um, yeah, this is the heritage of Lutheran music, right? Is that uh, Luther put the music uh, back into the people's mouths? And also, the Lutherans as a whole developed church music to a beauty and a glory that I, I think it had really never seen. And um, Paul, of course, commands us in Colossians 3 to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And um, I think it's completely natural. We kind of talked about like that snowball of the liturgy throughout history. That each generation adds to the um, to the to what's come before it, to the tradition that's come before it. And Lutherans have always been, I think, so great about this, right? That and, and it's never been where it's like something completely different, right? It's even Luther, right? When he wrote, he'd put him he'd put hymns to these tunes, these were tunes that were designed for church, designed to be sung, right? I think we talked about this before. Um, there's this uh, wives kind of wives tale or um, common myth that uh, Luther used like bar tunes. That's not. That's really not true. Yeah, he the the tunes that they were using these chorales. They were, these were written by these Lutheran composers for church, right? They were set apart from the world. Yeah, I think these yeah. were probably used. Yeah, possibly, right? Yeah, but I mean, Bach became famous. The, the other thing to note too is like, depending on the time you're talking about and location, it's like, um, the world's music and the church's music could have been more similar, right? Because because the world was more Christian, like the place, you know, the uh, at that time, right? But like, I think today, um. The, the world's music and the church's music are so different because the world and the and the church are so different, right? So um, for worship, the, the general principle of Christian worship throughout the centuries has always been that Christian worship is set apart from the world, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah in, in some way. And so that's really kind of more of my argument for like why traditional worship I think is better than that the more contemporary style if we can kind of define what that means, but that's that's beside the point. But um, yeah, I think uh, it. Oh, what I was saying was, yeah, it's that snowball, right? And Luther never, and and the reformers and the Lutherans, they didn't just like go to something completely different, right? They would they would take some of those older hymns and put them to the the, the chorale tunes, or they would take. Um, I mean, they were always drawing from scripture, right? And things were building upon one another. 
And we, we just have this great heritage of, of Lutheran music today. Yeah. Any comments, questions on that? See. Um, so that's that's Lutheran music. That kind of wraps up our discussion of worship. Was there anything, um, not just uh, hymns, but uh, or hymnody, but in worship in general that we didn't touch on that anyone wanted to know about? Any worship questions? Can I add Yeah. There was a thing on PBS several years ago, and PBS. But anyway, it was about the hymn "Amazing Grace." It's been sung the most, and I'm not saying it right, the most sung hymn ever. They showed it worldwide. They showed it. It was so fascinating. This whole documentary of people in Russia singing like back. Yeah. Years ago, back what when probably one of the earliest times anything could be filmed with sound, and and everywhere, even in in Africa, just and in like the Marine Band or something, something very contemporary. It was an hour, hour and a half worth of, but it was like at that time, and it what what did it say? It's like seventeen. Yeah, it was written in 1772. So right. So we're talking about from that time on. And, uh, I, and I don't remember if it ever said why that caught on or became something that you know, just became worldwide over the 300-something years since then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like like I said, I think... Um, I, I've got to look that up and see. Yeah. Maybe with YouTube, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, like I said, like poet, poetry and music just affect people differently than you know, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, who wrote it? Was it was it Isaac Watts or was it or someone else? John. Yeah, like oh yeah, that's John Newton, John Newton right? Um, so that's right. But he changed his life. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. And it's still there. Yeah. I've got now to find that and see if it was one of those things that I'm not even sure. I probably was zapping around and caught something on my own with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that's very interesting. And you can see that in other, like, I don't know, classical music isn't as popular today, but like. There are some classical pieces that, even if you're not into classical music, like they ju- they've just affected the world, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Like the um, the Dies Irae, right? The um, the Song of Death, right? It's actually in like if you you can look it up, it's like in like basically every movie. Whenever there's like any kind of death scene, mm-hmm. that'll kind of play in the background, and um, and, and that, I mean that's an old medieval hymn, basically. Right uh, about about remembering death and and remembering that we're we're gonna die and to dust we shall return and um, or I don't know anything right like Beethoven's Fifth or um, Pachelbel's Canon or you know any of these um, or Handel's Messiah right Handel's Messiah is one of my favorites and it's just it's like the whole of scriptures in, in a symphony and it these these things just really do affect people. They get into people's hearts in a different way, um, and I yeah I find I just find music incredibly important in in the ministry See, in the I church just, right. Like, ran the whole thing from the very beginning when this was written up to a rock band playing it now. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I tell you, the hardest stuff was Judah and I was trying to, we don't remember if it was the 400th anniversary. Yeah, was it yeah. 500th anniversary. Yeah, yeah we all sing. Oh, yeah. man, those were hard. Yeah. They work so hard. I can't sing anyway, but they, they were like, I don't know if I we was in the right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was a wonderful experience. It was. Yeah, yeah. And they had the German, it was Latin, it was everything. Oh, was it Latin? I think it was just German and English. 
No, sorry, it's in Latin too. Yeah. I don't know. That was a foreign language. I had it. Was <laughs> <laughs> the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Yeah. I have a DVD. Someone gave me a DVD. Somebody gave you the DVD? Yeah. We were all in there. We were in the choir. The choir was big back then. Everybody in our choir was there. We had the most people. And we had the most people in the choir. And most of us couldn't read music. It was not good. But we did good. We did as good as we could. And then somebody fell off the back of the bleeding. Yeah. One of us. We're all listening and also behind us. Bam. What did somebody from Bryce? No, it was like the chair. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was a fabulous thing. The riser. The riser. Yeah, the riser. Was. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of. But it was a lot of people there to see. From all over. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, music does affect people, right? And even this conversation shows, right, that like when you start thinking about music and talking, it's. Um, it really does. It brings up memories, right? It 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 affects people, and that's why it's always like a big thing. Like, okay, what at a like one of the biggest things in funeral planning is what were their favorite hymns? What are we gonna sing, right? It's always a um, big question. So, all right, um, we will we will move on here then. So to to kind of church history basics, and uh, again this does connect, right? Because a lot of what we've been talking about is the history of music. Now we're gonna look at the history of the church, um, and moving on to a really a new, a new section in the book, I think. Um, but yeah, what's the what's this part called? There's a big section called uh, Lutherans at a Glance. Okay, so it's going to talk about we're going to talk about the Reformation and uh, uh, the 1500s and the Lutherans coming to America and all that. But before we do that, we want to kind of put it in context. And so if you have your book, we're on page 288 and 289, and what it does is it splits up uh, these major kind of sections of church history, right? So again, this 10,000-foot view, but the first one we have is from, I don't know what just happened there, from 3 BC uh, to, what do we get, 100 AD, And uh, we're calling this the Apostolic Age. Apostolic Age. And so this is uh, what the book says here. Jesus was born around 3 BC. He was crucified and ascended to heaven around AD 33. Fifty days after his resurrection, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to help, comfort, and guide believers. The apostles and many other believers worked tirelessly to spread the good news about Jesus to as many people and places as they could. Right, so this is called the Apostolic Age, of course, because this is the time of the apostles, right? Um, the uh, the John John probably died around the year 100, um, and he was the the only apostle not to be martyred, actually, right? Um, so he's the only apostle who died of old age, and uh, then of course the last book of the Bible is Revelation, who which John which John authored, and I think I think. Um, I have an early dating of Revelation. I think it was written before 70 AD because I think a lot of what John talks about in Revelation is um, prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. But that's beside the point. Uh, the point is this this kind of hundred years in the time of Jesus and the apostles, uh, this is the, the earliest of the early church, right? And we do have a couple of um, – we have a number of documents, right, other than just the Bible. Uh, we have um, – a collection of documents that is normally referred to um, as the Apostolic uh, Fathers, and you can get this in a in a on Amazon or whatever as just a bound book, the Apostolic Fathers, and it includes things like the Didache, which is this early church manual, basically, um, which is a great uh, resource. It it shows a lot of what. And it was written in like 90 or something. It was um, 
very early on, um, uh, likely written, I think, by, I want to say, by Polycarp, who was the disciple of John, right? So uh, you have the Didache, you have um, things like First and Second Clement, who was an early church father, uh, who wrote some documents. And these are some of the documents that were actually considered like, maybe this is scripture, right? Maybe this should be included in the Bible type of documents. So uh, the Apostolic Fathers is a good resource um, for kind of extra biblical, um, if you're interested in that. Uh, but it um, one of the things that I just want to point out that we're going to kind of see is that especially Lutherans, especially this is Lutheranism 101, really do see themselves as the continuation of this history of Orthodox Christianity or, or truly true right-believing Christianity, biblical Christianity uh, throughout history, right? So um, we have no problem claiming in some sense the Didache or the Apostolic Fathers as our own, right? Um, you know, some there's Protestants, other Protestants out there that would say, Oh well, that's Roman Catholic stuff, or that's Eastern Orthodox stuff, right? And as Lutherans, we say no, that's it's Christian, right? It's the history of Christianity, and we're part of that train, right? And when the Roman Catholics departed from that train in the medieval era, in the late medieval era, the Lutherans picked up the ball and kept rolling, right? Um, right so um, I just kind of want to point that out, right? Go ahead, Steve. Is that, uh, some of the things that are and the September newsletter that you put at the end, uh, like I've been listening to Eusebius or Eusebius. Or, uh, yeah. It, it's uh, really quite interesting. Yeah, Eusebius is a little bit later. Yeah, well, yeah, but, I, these are all after the Nicene Creed. Yeah. That's where I started listening. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I thought, well, maybe the JDK uh, or whatever you call it, is that in there too? Yeah, it's probably on there. So what Steve's referencing is um, the... Extras from the desk of Pastor Myers section in the September newsletter is a website um, called, uh, I think it's ccel.org, I want to say. Um, and it's a, basically a library of classical Christian documents that have been translated into English. Um, and you said you're listening to it? It's got audio on there too? Well, yeah, I, I listen to it. I didn't read it. No. Oh. I didn't even know no, it. I'm, I'm driving my security truck around. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, so uh, that's a good website. It's got tons of these d- different kinds of documents on there for free, um, just on the uh, internet. Um, but I, I always like hardcover books, you know. Um, not while you're driving your truck. Not when I'm driving my truck. That's true. <laughs> driving, so. I do listen to audiobooks and, and a lot of podcasts and stuff, but all right. Um, the next section is something that you hear me say a lot, uh, 100 to 312, and normally I'm kind of including these together, but uh, this is what they just call the early church, right? And I, I mean, I think it's almost self-explanatory why we care what the early church believes and thinks about, right? Because they're the closest to the source, right? Mm-hmm. And so what the early church is doing and thinking, it's not the end-all be-all, and of course, the early church could have been wrong about things. Um, and in fact, I think there are places where you can see in the early church, I don't think they understood what Jesus was saying right? um, when, when they do this or that or the other thing. But the early church is very important to see, okay, the generations immediately following Christ, how are they practicing Christianity, right? Like what, how did they, um, what was passed down, right? immediately after the time of Jesus that was the practice of Christianity, the established practice of Christianity. Um, at the time when they were in the catacombs and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and it's so also a time of persecution, harder, right? Harder, you know, so that, that, that's important because that also um, speaks, I think, to some level to their fidelity, that they're, they're definitely not just being affected by the world, right? And in a sense, they are being affected by the world, but being affected in a way that makes them more faithful to the scriptures, right? That drives them uh, to their faith. Like there's no, there's no uh, societal reason for these people to be Christian, and yet they are, right? Because they're they're 
they're very persecuted. Okay, so. Mm-hmm. Because they're persecuted. Right. So uh, this is what the book says. By 100 AD, most of the eyewitnesses who had met Jesus had died, but the church continued to grow both in number of believers and in and the area of the world over which the gospel had spread. Early Christians faced persecution both by Jewish and Roman leaders. Many early Christians refused to die their faith, f- to deny their faith, even when faced with violent deaths. And really, we should talk about martyrdom um, at some point too. Uh, but there's a, a phrase, um, very famous uh, phrase from this time period. I can't remember which which church father said it, but um, the phrase is the blood of the martyrs. And this is exactly what Steve was just talking about: is the seed of the church. Yeah, right. Yeah, very, very much so. There was very much an eschatological view at, at hand. Um, and I think we actually see that again today is that um, you see a lot of people now again, and this was true in Luther's time as well because of the invasion of the Turks, a lot of people talking about the end of the world, right? Yeah. Because it feels like it has to be close at hand. So, um, But this, yeah, this, this quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, uh, it's worth dwelling on or thinking about a little bit, right, that um, just what Steve was saying, right, that the persecution that Christians undergo, it really does strengthen the faith of of those around them, right? And it shows that these people are serious about what they believe. There's no fence sitting. Right. Yeah, there's no fence sitting. There's no lukewarm Christianity, right? Um when when it comes down to, to people being martyred. And and really what what martyrdom is is a witness to the resurrection, right? Um, because why else would these people be unafraid to die unless Jesus also rose from the dead? Um, and they've been baptized into that. So um and they knew their life their life as it would have been was so bad that if Jesus mm-hmm. came and took them yeah, they were confident. Yeah. Yeah, they were confident in the blood of Christ. And there's some great. Um, so one of the kind of interesting facts about martyrs in the early church is that the there's a lot of seeming miracles that are attested to at various martyrdoms. So, um, well, we'll have to read some of those martyrdom accounts. They're really fascinating. Uh, my favorite is is Saint Lawrence, who was being roasted over a fire, and they asked him while he had been while he was still being roasted. He should have been dead already, but they asked him, "Are you ready to deny Jesus yet?" And he says, "No, but you can turn me over now because I think I'm done on this side." <laughs> so, yeah. Real contemporary, uh, you know, just the last few days. Leader of the Proud Boys in Washington D.C. Yeah. with the January 6th thing, sentenced to 24, 25 years or something. Yeah. Well, anyway, he was saying on a podcast. I don't know how he can broadcast from jail, but anyway, uh, he said that well, it's only 25 years, but the life, you know, everlasting life is forever. So this short time that I'm being persecuted is nothing. Hmm. Yeah, that's what he said. I forget what his name was. Interesting. Maybe so. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard of yeah. January 6th and the Proud Boys. Well, I, I, I haven't heard, heard of that. that. But yeah, that just happened. All right. Interesting. Good deal. All right. Well, uh, we'll stop there. Uh, that's So that that's the early church. Um, we'll get Once we get to 312, that's an important date because that's uh, Constantine. So um, we'll pick this back up next week, and then we'll continue into the, all the Luther... Reformation stuff. No, uh, no, no. Next week I'm still here. Uh, the week after, um, I'm in Fort Wayne. So, yeah. Well.
we won't be able to meet that week. But thank you, Judy. All right, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and rise again to give us forgiveness of sins and new life. And we pray that you'd always keep this new life before our eyes, that even if we are persecuted for our faith, we would make a strong confession uh, by word or by song of your holy name and the faith that we have, that we too will rise from the dead. We pray this to your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.